was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to introduce our guest, Broadway star Cass Morgan. Cass Morgan is the co-writer and star of the musical Pump Boys and Dinettes, and Broadway patrons will also remember her performances in The Human Comedy, The Cape Man, Ring of Fire, Beauty and the Beast, Mary Poppins, Memphis, and The Bridges of Madison County. Her touring work includes Annie Warbucks and Cabaret, and she is also a regular performer off-Broadway with such credits as Violet, La Boheme, Hang On to the Good Times, The Knife, Merrily We Roll Along, Floyd Collins, The Immigrant, Another Paradise, Inside Out, As You Like It, and more. So without further ado, enjoy my talk with Cass Morgan. So how did you first get interested in theater? Um, my first real interest in theater started in maybe fifth grade, sixth grade in grade school. And, you know, we would do plays in, you know, as just part of the regular year, not a theater program, just part of, you know, sometimes it would focus on a historical character or something. And I was always in them and I, I always played the mother. And uh, even though I resented that as a 10 year old, I, I look back on it and I think, well, that's where I first learned that I was a character actress, because basically that's what I am. So that's where I first got introduced to just the whole idea of theater. But then when I was in high school, ninth grade, I kind of uh, joined a community theater group that was for um, kids from all over the city. I was in Rochester, New York. And so I kind of fell in love immediately when I walked through the door with my friend June, who was doing properties for um, a musical called The Boyfriend. And <laughs> do you know that show? Very silly, fun, beautiful score. And I, you know, it was like Dorothy coming to Oz. I walked through the doors of that old church that had become a theater and just thought, I like this. I like this. And so I became her assistant and, uh, you know, learned everything and then was in the next show and then never looked back. So were you seeing a lot of theater as well as performing in it? When I was a kid, no, no, I would see when I got up into my teens, um, like 16, 15, 16, 17, there is a huge theater in Rochester um, called the, I think the Masonic Auditorium, the Masonic, I think that's what it was called. And uh, huge, like massive and road shows would come through there. And sometimes there would just be a little clump of people down in the orchestra section because the theater was thousands, 2,000 people. So I would volunteer to usher there and see whatever I could see. Um, but I didn't see very much. I just kind of fell in love with doing it yeah. and, and singing on stage. And I sang in choirs at school, and, you know, anything I can, could do that 
allowed me to, um, I don't know what it was. It just, you know, if you love the theater, you know, there, there's something magical about it that touches parts of your imagination and your psyche that you can't really explain. <laughs> just makes you feel like yourself. So where did you study acting or singing in terms of? Um, I didn't really. I went to Adelphi University on Long Island for one year. And I was in the theater department there. Although back then, when you were a freshman in college, you were not allowed to take theater courses. You took uh, speech and then had academics. So I didn't do very well and I dropped out. Um, over the course of my career, I have taken a few voice lessons, um, you know, tried to take an acting class every once in a while. But for some reason for me, it never really felt very good. So yeah. I just kind of learned by doing and I was lucky enough to get cast a lot. And so I had a lot of on the job training. So did you have any sort of acting inspirations in terms of people you saw on the stage or on the screen who you wanted to be like? Um, no, <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I just, uh, I've always admired wonderful actors and would study, study what they did and try to figure out how they managed to um, create something so natural or outrageous or whatever it was they did. I mean, I mean, yeah, I never, there was not, oh, I want to be Judy Garland or I want to be, I, I was never like that. Yeah. I'm still not like that. I, most of the shows that I have done have been original. I have not, you know, I have done very few um, revivals or um, kind of big mainstream. I've done a lot of, um, like off-Broadway and a lot of shows that I originated the character. Yeah. yeah. So one of the first shows you did, I believe was Smooch, where you were working with. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe you knew that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I yeah. think you worked uh, with Jim Wan, who you would later write Pump Boys and Dinettes with. So that's her. Did you sort of have a connection then as well or a friendship? I had already done Diamond Studs. Oh. And I was in the Washington DC company of that. So we knew each other. And then he wrote, he and Bland Simpson wrote a musical called Hot Grog for me, which we then did in Chapel Hill. And um, so we had an, a friendship and a working relationship and then, and then we um, became a couple and then we were married. And so when we were working on Pump Boys and Dinettes together, we were already uh, a married couple. So when, at what point did you move to the city? Oh gosh, well, first when I was about 18, um, left school and came to New York and stumbled around and didn't know anything and had no connections. And, um, and then I left, I mean, I have a very checkered life, my dear, and checkered career, so. But then I came back, because um, I was in hair. I yeah, I was in hair in 1970. 
So I guess I was there, I, I guess I might've been there in the late sixties. I had gone and done some regional theater and gotten my equity card and learned some more about how to be an actor. And, and then I was cast in, as a replacement in Hair when it was at the Biltmore, uh, which is now the Gerald Friedman Theater. And, um, and then I left again and, um, you know, kind of focused more on music and songwriting and um, had a band and moved down south and worked with Jim. And then we came back to New York together. And that would have been 76, maybe. So that's when I say, OK, I moved to New York in 1976. <laughs> and then I've basically been a New Yorker ever since that. So what was the experience like of doing Hair, which would have been your first Broadway show? That's correct. It was everything you've ever heard, Charles. Absolutely everything. It was fantastic. It was exhilarating. It was scary. Because back when, back then, the, the Vietnam War was still going on. And, there, and it's a very, the, the piece is actually very political. And so it was daring in a way to, to make the statements that we made on stage every night. Um, but it was so thrilling to be part of something that, that was dangerously political at the time and that actually changed people's minds. Yeah. Um, and the, the score I think is still one of the most spectacular scores ever written. And um, I, it was a thrill to sing that music every night and to just be part of that Although uh, by the time I was in it, had had been running for a couple of years, and it was very much, uh, it was very anarchic in every way, including the way the actors kind of ruled the roost and kind of <laughs> the stage manager what they were going to be doing, and so it was a little uh, strange, especially for me coming from having done regional theater and you know playing by the rules all the time, but. But it was really, I met some amazing people and it, it was, a, I'm thrilled that I was able to be part of that piece of music theater history. So during the early stages of your performing, did you consider yourself mostly an actress, a singer or a dancer? <laughs> Never a dancer, although uh, I have actually done some things that you might call dancing uh, in my career, but, um, I think I always thought of myself secretly as an actor first, um, but I was hired more as a singer. Yeah. And then over the years, my confidence as an actor grew and uh, things kind of moved together. And um, so now I think that I can kind of fit in either category. So I want to ask you next about Pump Boys and Dinettes. Yes. So how did the sort of idea for that come to you? Well, um, Jim and I were living in New York and we had done a show at Actors Theatre of Louisville with a brilliant actor named Mark Hardwick who was also a genius pianist and a singer and a tap dancer, he was amazing, he could do anything. And we kind of became friends and hung out when we got back to New York. And he had a friend named Deborah Monk, who he introduced me to saying, you two will be really good friends. And we all just sort of started hanging out together. And Jim and Mark Hardwick were playing songs together that Jim had written. 
that were, some of those songs were wound up in the show, uh, just gigging around. And Deb and I were having trouble getting any kind of job, you know? So we thought, well, maybe what we need to do is write our own show. So we started brainstorming and decided that we would be sisters. And Deb was working as a waitress at the time. So she said, I, I just love waitresses. They're so tough. They're so uh, in charge of their lives. And, you know, um, let's make them waitresses. So, okay, sisters who are waitresses. And then we just kind of, did that back and forth and we came with the whole uh, the whole story of the dinettes and running the diner that they'd inherited from their grandmother. And, um, and then one day we kind of secretly confessed to each other that we both wrote songs. So we started writing a couple. And so I, I wrote, I would write something and then bring it to Deb and then she would help me finish it. So we did menu song. And then she wrote tips and brought it to me and then I helped her finish it. And we kind of went back and forth that way. Um, in the meantime, Jim and Mark and another friend had joined them, John Foley, I think at that time. And, and so it seemed like there might be something there with the two businesses, the gas station guys and the waitresses. And it all really happened um, at a going away party at Manhattan Theater Club for a woman named Ruby Lerner who had asked the pump boys to entertain at her party. Oh. And, and she said to me, Do you, I hope the dinettes can join them. And I said, huh? <laughs> and she said, well, I just thought, you know, it'd be fun. And I thought, yeah. So I, I said, sure. And then I called Deb and I said, okay, we have a job and now we have to learn. Uh, we have to actually learn our songs and we have to learn backup for some of the guys' songs and we have to get outfits. And so we, all of us performed together at this party and it was just magical. You could feel the electric energy in the room. And kind of from there on, we started working towards the I'm two happy. entities as one thing and tried to figure out how to make a sort of a story that fit together and move forward. So how did you sort of begin to get it produced once you had a product with both? Good question. We um, played anywhere. We would go down in the village to open mic nights, you know, and, uh, and we would just, all of us would show up and do a couple of songs and do the patter in between. And eventually, um, the West Side Arts, which is on 43rd Street, it's a theater, it might not still be called that, it's on across from Manhattan Plaza on 43rd and 9th, it's an off-Broadway theater. They had a club upstairs, and the guy that ran that asked us if we would like to do Sunday nights, like do, all, do Sunday nights in, in May. So we said, sure. And so then we really put our heads together and figured out as much of a show as we could. And we did that. And by the end of those Sunday nights, we had, there, there was a following. So then he said, how would you like to do late night shows after our main stage show uh, in July? Oh. And so we did that. And we had one uh, a cast change and, um, that's when John Schimmel, our genius bass player, joined us. And so we refined the show a little more, added a little more original material. And we did those, we did three shows a week, I believe, all of July. And by the end of that 
it was packed and you couldn't get in. We had all the producers, many New York producers wanting to meet with us and talk about taking the show. And it went from there. We signed on with the Dodgers and we worked with them off Broadway and then they moved us to Broadway. So when you did move to Broadway, was that something that you were expecting to happen or hoping would happen? Or? I think we were hoping, but we didn't dare expect it to happen. You know, we were having a really good time. We were in a very small theater called the, um, the Colonnades Theater, which was near the Astor Place Theater, right across from the public theater. I think it sat maybe 125 people if they were squeezed together, it was really small. And so the producers really couldn't make any money, but it showcased the show really well there. It, it plays well intimately. And when the opportunity came, we got good reviews, um, a couple of really good reviews and they decided to, to do the, the move. And I want to ask you about what your collaboration was like with Deborah Monk and Jim Wan and all the others. Well, it was just so easy. It really was. We all, um, there was a certain point, I don't know if this will make any sense to you, but in the evolution of the show where the show itself kind of became a being and it knew what to do. And so we would all know when something needed to be cut or if something needed to be replaced or you know something like that. And we would talk about it and we would know who would write it and you know, various of us worked on various things, but it was never ever that we sat down to write a show, never. It just slowly evolved out of who we were, how much fun we had together, and um, the characters that we invented for ourselves, yeah. because that's really what we did. We, we all decided who we were gonna be, and then the stories came out of that. Just like kids doing, playing dress up and making up characters and then, Tell, you know, it's a natural thing that kids do. That's what we did. And it just worked. And we would think, well, if we think this is funny, then maybe it's funny. <laughs> and, it, and for the most part, it, it was really easy. And you know, we just had a wonderful time. We did. So, so you're all credited as directing it. So were you sort of each directing each other or were you mostly sort of doing your own? We kind of didn't even think about it. We would just make a decision about, well, first of all, as I said, the, the Colonnades Theater, the stage was so small that there were very few places you could be because the guys are on stage with their basses and their amps and their pianos there. And there's very little room, you couldn't go anywhere. So you could kind of walk downstage and back and it, it couldn't go anywhere. So it was pretty, mostly it was about, because these were in the days of mics on with chords and mics on stands. And, so it was a lot of it was mic choreography of how not to get the microphone cords all tangled up that determined what we actually did and where we moved. So we kind of figured it out together. When we moved to Broadway, uh, but this, it's so insightful that you, that you noticed that. Uh, when we moved to Broadway, then it became clear that we needed somebody to have our back because we had yeah. three times the playing area and we were gonna be, you know. So the producers brought someone in who's promised not to do anything, to lay anything on top of us or anything. And, and it didn't go well. Yeah. And we, we all went along with it. And then during 
the last bits of, of you know, tech rehearsals, it became clear that it, the show had been taken off in a direction that it shouldn't be. Everything, everything changed, costumes, lights, everything. Added choreography, things that just didn't seem comfortable and natural and right. So um, the decision was made right before our gypsy run through oh. that we would not have him. And we, we, we went, we had been on the Today Show that morning. So we'd been up at four o'clock in the morning, did the Today Show. We all went home, took a nap, went back to the theater and rolled up our sleeves and got to work restoring everything. They got the old costumes, they changed the lighting plot back. And that is when we would take turns going out in the house and saying, I think you need to be over there a little bit. And, you know, yeah. the stuff, it was very subtle. By that time, we knew each other so well and we knew where the pathos was, where the comedy was, we, we, you know, we knew what to do. So we just, it was just a way of helping each other be more, be comfortable and not block anybody and be in the best spot for your moment. So what was the experience like of being able to not just star in a show on Broadway, but star in your own show on Broadway? You know, we never really thought we just kind of did it. it It all because of the way it evolved. We always just felt like it was something that it was fun for us and that we had nothing to lose and why not? And we were getting a, we got jobs and, you know, we actually got paid for doing this. And then, you know, it, it really hit us the night of the gypsy run through, which was, do you know about those things? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, they're like at 11 o'clock at night when uh, they don't do them anymore. They rarely do them anymore, but it's so the gypsies and all the other shows can come and see what their friends are doing because they're never going to see them because they're doing their own show. So I think we were at, oh, maybe 100 people over capacity in the theater. It was a 500 seat theater we were in, just barely the number to be qualified as a Broadway house. And it, the people were just jammed in there. And remember, we'd been up since four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> on the Today Show, came, redid the show, had some dinner, put on our costumes and hit the stage. When we, so we weren't even thinking, what's it gonna, oh, they're all gonna, we didn't even have time to think about that. And when we hit the stage, there was this roar that came up from, from the house. It was extraordinary. And we all kind of looked at each other and then started and the rest of it's a blur. I don't even remember doing that show, but. None of us do, I think, but just that what we heard back afterwards and what we felt coming at us was this extraordinary pride and love from our community that they're like they were cheering us on so strong because we had done it. We had created our own peace for ourselves and we were part of that community that and it's just something that is rare. Yeah, I think we realized at the time. What it was so. so what was it like the night of the tonys that the show was nominated for best music <laughs> that was really funny because uh tony randall was the host and we were up first and it was the year of dream girls and nine and you know i think joseph maybe i think might have been that year as well and um we kind of knew we didn't have a shot at, win at winning much of anything, but we were so excited to just have been included. 
And so all these other shows have elaborate costumes and sets and everything. And we just had our, the guys in their gas station outfits and us in our little waitress dresses. And, and we had to have amps on stage because we were the band. And nobody had ever done anything like that before. So they didn't quite know what to do with us, the produce, TV producers of the Tony Awards. And um, I remember standing on the stage waiting and Tony Randall was out in the house and introduced us from there and looking out at a sea of fur coats and diamonds and everybody all dressed up and there we are in our polyester uniforms just thinking this is very strange <laughs> but uh you know it we were we were all very nervous but it went really well and we had a fantastic time it was just it was so exciting. And we weren't disappointed because we knew we weren't going to win anything, but, but we just we just had the best possible time. And then we had a big party that the Dodgers threw for us afterwards. So do you all still sort of remain friends and collaborators? I know you reunited at 54 Below. We did. That was the first time. Well, Mark has passed away. So unfortunately, you know, Bob Stillman, Set in, uh, sat in for him and he was magnificent. Um, Deb and I have remained friends and collaborators, no, not really. I mean, I've written things on my own. Jim writes on his own. John Foley has his own. John Schimmel works uh, in Los Angeles in the film industry. Um, but but um, whenever we are together, it's very, very moving and joyful. And that thing at, at studio at 54 Below was, I don't know, it was just fantastically fun <laughs> to, you know, all these years later to get to be able to do what we loved. We had to work really hard to get back up to speed to oh. be able to do it <laughs> because we hadn't done it in decades, you know, but it was just a blast. And, and um, people came from all over to cram themselves into that space to see it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really wonderful. So having been so much a part of the original, what have you thought of subsequent productions of the show? Oh, honey, I have seen so many productions. I've directed several productions. Oh. And um, I, I, I learned a, a big lesson, I think the first time I saw a production of it that I had nothing to do with. And I, I was kind of appalled at, some of the choices that were made. Uh, just, I couldn't figure out what they were doing, why they were going to black, why they were all these weird things. And I was mortified because I knew a number of people that were in this production. Oh. I kept thinking, what am I gonna say to them? They know I'm here, what am I gonna say? What am I gonna say? And as the show went on, I started to notice that the audience was completely wrapped up in it. and having a ball. And they just thought it was the greatest thing they'd ever seen. So I just thought, oh, I don't have to say anything except you were wonderful. I just have to tell them they were wonderful. So that's what I did. And I meant it, <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, that's so easy. Who cares what I think? <laughs> what the audience thinks is what's, and what they think. Because one of the magical things about Pump Boys and Dinettes is that somehow you take these six people and put them together and make them support each other musically. Cause that's what you have to do. You have to trust so hard and just 
if they form a family, a really tight family, and uh, there are a lot of marriages that came out of out of various companies doing the show. And um, I just thought, I've just thought over the years, what a gift. We had no idea we were giving to people that they get to do this show and they form these tight bonds and these families that go on for years and years and years. So that's mostly what I've thought is gra gratitude and um, joy at seeing people have so much fun making music together and telling stories. So the next Broadway show that you worked on after Pump Boys and Dinettes was the human comedy. Correct. You were a standby in this show. Did you get to go on? I never did. But uh, that was very short-lived, but I was very uh, moved by that show. It had a beautiful score. I, I, I assume, I can't remember now what the, the problems were with it, but I really wish somebody would revisit that because it's, it's got a beautiful score. Galt McDermott. Yeah, so that was the same person who wrote Hair, which was your first Broadway show. Right, right. Uh, I don't think there was any um, connection. I, by the time I did the human comedy, I had done a lot of other things. And you yeah. know. So if you do end up being in a show that doesn't run for as long as maybe it deserves to, do you try to sort of stay above getting disappointed by it or? Oh, wow. You know, I've done, I've been lucky and I've been in a lot, a number of long runs or where I've been in a show for a year and a half or something. Um, it's hard if you really love a show like Bridges of Madison County. I absolutely loved that. I thought it was beautiful. I loved the music. I loved my character that I played. I, I just, it was a joy to go to work. And I was blindsided by the reviews and I really thought we were gonna somehow overcome them and run. And that one was hard. I was really um, very sad and disappointed when that closed. But for the most part, you kind of know and, and you something happens where you, you start preparing yourself and by the time it ends, you're ready and you, you just move on. It's, yeah, it's, um, and uh, you know, there are wonderful things about every show I've been in. So uh, you, 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 you remember what was joyful and the friends you made. Yeah. So on La Boheme, which was one of your next shows, you were working with Wilford Leach who had just done Human Comedy. So yes. Did he sort of hire you for both or did he know you? No, he, uh, he hired me as the uh, standby for Bonnie Kolak in Human Comedy. Um, I'm not even sure he ever heard me sing any of it. You know, I, I can't even remember. But I auditioned for, I got a call to audition for La Boheme and I thought they were out of their minds. I, I'm not an opera singer. I, I, and they said, well, this is what it is. And here's the music, they, they want to see you tomorrow because they couldn't cast the role of Musetta. So I went to see a friend who was a accompanist. And I said, here it is. Do you think I can sing this? He said, I don't know, let's find out. So we started working on it. And as we worked on it and sang it, it kind of got into my voice and I was singing way up there and, I, and he started to laugh and I said, 
that is not fair. Don't you laugh? He said, no, I'm laughing because I think you can actually do this. So <laughs> I, okay. So I went in for the audition and I did it and they, they hired me. Yeah. That's, that's all I know. They asked me if they thought I could do that eight times a week. And I, I didn't know it was difficult. I'd never, I knew opera singers don't sing eight times a week. There's more, there's more demanding. I'd never studied anything like that. So I didn't really know what I was doing. And it took its toll. I, I had a little trouble, vocal trouble at certain points, but that was really fun. I loved doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable costumes, Jane Greenwood costumes and Howard McGillen and Linda Ronstadt and just wonderful people. It was, it was fun. I loved doing it. I was going to ask you, you were working also with a lot of people who were not sort of opera singers, at least not known for being opera singers, but was everyone sort of able to do it well? Yeah. Linda Ronstadt has an amazing coloratura and she had done, previous to that, she had done Pirates of Penzance with Wilfred. Yeah. And um, so I think he went to her and said, so what do you want to do next? And she said, Bohème. So I think that's how we came to do it. She was dating um, George Lucas at the time, Star Wars. Oh, oh. He would, we would see him. He would come to the public and hang out and stand in the wings and hold hands with her. <laughs> it was so sweet. It was so sweet. <laughs> so... What was it like to work with Joe Papp, who produced this show? He, um, I don't remember him being around much with that. I worked, I did the knife at the public and he was very involved with that. He was, uh, he loved that piece. So um, I, we would see him, he would come by rehearsals and watch run-throughs and cry. And he was a real, uh, he was very, passionate about theater and developing theater and trying new things and supporting um, new actors and directors. And so it was great. Yeah. So you worked with Gretchen Cryer and Nancy Ford on Hang On to the Good Time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. That is so funny that you found that. Uh -huh. So what was it like to be working with uh, well, they're both wonderful, and um, it was a, you know, a lot of theater songs don't really lend themselves well to the review format because they're so connected to the book and the characters. So I think there was a little difficulty in trying to make something of a whole, a piece out of it. But Don Scardino was in it, and Charlene Woodard was in it, and we had so much fun. Um, Terry Klossner, we had just a, we all had such a great time together that, um, and there's the, the songs themselves, of course, are great. Yeah. Know? So uh, I love them. I, I really got along re especially well with Gretchen. And so yeah. it was certainly a switch in genre from your last show, which had been La Boheme. So, <laughs> <Yes. he's... laughs> I know that's what I mean. I mean, I don't, I've never, I've always done kind of the odd, it's always been a little odd 
My, my path is not direct, never has been. Done all kinds of different things. Is there one kind of the two styles that you prefer? Or both? Hmm. Um, I, I'm more comfortable in a more, not even a traditional Broadway sound. I don't think I sing like that, but I'm more comfortable in a more contemporary, folky um, kind of music. And um, even, even, I mean, even what Jason wrote for me to sing in Bridges of Madison County is not like the rest of the score. It's kind of bluesy and lots of room for interpretation on the part of the singer. So yeah, I, I like all kinds of music, but I feel more comfortable in, in, in that, I guess, in that genre. So do you like working on a stage that's as big as city center or would you where that was or would you prefer smaller city center um i've done everything i've worked i did uh, we did punk boys and dinettes once several of us at the kansas city starlight which is gone now it was like the muni huge and we did it at the muni as well and uh <laughs> huge like five thousand you know and that was a little hard because you had to make sure people knew that I mean, there's a joke at the Muni that you find a way to wave your arm before you speak so that they know where to look. I mean, it's really, there's these little tiny actors and the audience is wave. <clears throat> but um, I think after working in so many different venues, you, you're, you're, you just sort of calibrate yourself um, to project the right amount for a bigger stage to include. If you're working in the round, you kind of automatically know that somebody's going to be looking at your back. You kind of have to keep moving, keep adjusting. You kind of learn how to read the room and how to feel the space and adjust what you do. So um, I think I prefer just because I like hiding in a character. Yeah. I think I prefer uh, a mid-size theater than a very small. Yeah. That so, can be <laughs> a little personal, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so you've done a few workshops in your career. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are more, but the ones that I found were um, Colette Collage and Tarzan. So oh, yeah. is there, what would you say you like about doing workshops? Do you like the collaboration sort of? Oh, I love I love working on new material with uh, with writers. I just love it. I, I would I used to I, there was a point in my career when, when I was always doing a reading, always doing a workshop. And if I, I would say if I could make a living doing this, this is all I would do. Because it's just so interesting. And you're always working on new material. It's changing. You have input. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the way material strikes you, it, it is important. And it's always fresh and new. And um, I loved working on Tarzan. Uh, I loved singing Phil Collins songs. And I thought, and, and Matt Morrison was Tarzan in the first oh. one I did. He was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I played his mother. But then when they finally did it, they they went with an African-American actress as the mother. And I don't remember who it was. It was Miss Tarzan. 
I never saw it actually, but it was really fun and it was really funny. And, um, you know, when you're in a small room with a bunch of really creative people and it's just, it's so freeing. There's something very free about it. And you're not worrying about, you're reading also, you're on book. Yeah. And you're not worrying about anything. You're just doing it and feeling it and exploring it. And that's the most fun. So is there a show that you feel that you've had an especially large input on? Oh. Well, I don't know. Um, maybe Bridges, I don't know. I, I would talk with Marsha a lot, um, but I, I really don't know. I'm not sure about that. Yeah. I've, lo I've loved working on all of them. <laughs> so working on, I didn't do any readings of, um, at Memphis maybe. I mean, I think, I think that once I was cast in that role, they had had other actresses in it along its journey. Then they kind of solidified the character and then it kind of, that was built on me to some degree, Memphis. Um, so I don't know, I have to really, you know, I'm old, honey, and I've done an awful lot of things and it's hard to remember. <laughs> so when you, when you do a show in a workshop, do you usually try to or want to then do subsequent productions of it? Yes, usually. I usually do because you fall in love with it and it's, you know, I can't think of one right now that I've done where I thought, ugh, can't wait till that's over. <laughs> I really can't. Um, there's, there's, like I said, there's always wonderful things and everything. And it's, I've been very lucky in that that's the way it has gone for me most of the time. That if I've been asked to do the readings and then I've been asked to do then the production, that's not always the case. Because like I did, we did, I think four different week long workshops of Bridges of Madison County over the course of several years. And um, except for Kelly and myself, the rest of the personnel changed a lot. Yeah. They would try it out. They try things out on you until they find, oh, that's, that's, what, that's what we want. That's the quality we want. Not that anybody wasn't good or anything like that. It's just a fit. They feel it fits. So, um, but um, I've been pretty lucky in being invited along on most of the things I've done. So you did the musical, The Knife, you had mentioned that earlier. So it was written and directed by David Hare, who was yeah. a playwright too. So yeah. what was it like to work with him on a musical? He was fascinating. I'd never spent any time with a British director and um, it was such a strange piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, we had, a lot of fun and the workshop and learning it and trying it out. This is where I really remember Joe because he would come and then we did a kind of a on our feet after, I think we worked for like three or four weeks or something on that. And then we did a performance of it just in street clothes, no lighting. And there were maybe 20 people. I remember Wally Sean was there and oh. Joe and, you know, friends of these amazing people. And that's where I remember seeing Joe just weeping, weeping, so moved by the story. 
And that probably was the best that that show ever was because there were, there's something about the expectation level and how that impacts how a show is received. And when something is presented in just street clothes with no lights, like there's no expectation level. You just come and say, well, what's this? And it snuck up on people and they were very moved. But then you can take that same thing and costume it and stage it and get this big, we had this huge hydraulic piece of thing that it went way, way up. It was sort of like the original Jesus Christ superstar thing that they did. Oh. And um, wigs and you know the dramatic lighting and all that. And then you set it in a big, and a small story becomes overwhelmed by all of the, the production values. That, that I have seen that happen a number of times. And that's what happened with that. And it was not received well. So, um, but you know, it's a beautiful, strange, delicate story about a man who changes his sex. Yeah. And becomes best friends with his ex-wife. That's what usually David, I remember him saying that's often what happens <laughs> in Britain with that. But um, I, I don't know, we, we all, loved being part of it as we were developing it because it was so unusual yeah. and David's so smart and 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 so we, we all kind of had to learn the British way of doing nothing on stage very subtle it was fun yeah so what was your experience like working with Mandy Patinkin who starred in it was very nice to me I I enjoyed it uh you know, I don't know. It was good. Yeah. I don't have any real stories, you know, but he was good. I didn't play that much with him. I had, I worked with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio some, and, um, but my character was a little bit isolated. Her story was not the main story. So you were saying that that show was not received very well. What is your opinion on critics in general? <laughs> okay, well, I haven't really read any reviews um, in many, many, many years. So that ought to tell you something. The, the last time I thought, oh, I can't wait to read the reviews was Floyd Collins, which I did at Playwrights Horizons and is still my favorite theatrical experience of everything I've ever done. It's just exquisite. And so I was convinced that those were gonna be, they were just gonna roll out the red carpet and that was, that was gonna be a massive artistic hit. And it wasn't. And the New York Times review was very dismissive and I, I, I was just gut punched, you know? I just thought, what's wrong with people, you know? And I just thought, all right, that's it. I'm not, I'm not watched reading anymore. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't change how I felt about the show or my work in the show or anything, but it, it was heartbreaking. Yes. That's an exquisite piece. You've led me right into, that was the next thing that I was going to ask you about. So what was it like to work with Adam Gettle, who was still a rising talent at that time? Yes, yes, he was very much. It was amazing. He's also, I don't know if you know this or not, but a, beautiful singer 
just oh that. no I didn't it was a pure he was a boy soprano at the Met when he was a kid and um so it's like a he's a perfect pure jazz singer and um an astonishing musician as well and so to work with and Ted Sperling was the music director who's a genius and they both had such amazing insights into how a singer produces sound and how to subtly change the tone of a vowel and just little tiny things that you most people never even talk to you about they just say oh that sounds great you know and so uh working with adam was kind of like dissecting certain parts particularly of uh, heart and hand he dissected that so saying like when you make this vowel sound here if you place it more on the back of your tongue and we're like huh okay i'm used to thinking that way but i did and it, it worked and just so i just had such profound and it was subtle very very subtle profound respect for his ear and his um his insights and and just his writing i i just thought it was magical we all did all of us to a person I feel the same way about having been in that production. So do you prefer doing a, well, you were saying you've done mostly originals and not revivals, but do you prefer sort of doing a off-Broadway thing to a more commercial Broadway show? I do. Not that I regret for one moment having done Beauty and the Beast or, or Mary Poppins, um, where where I was in a big machine, you know, that was, they're hard. Doing those big Disney shows are very different from doing other kinds of theater because they're not actor driven. They're, they're machinery, literally machinery driven that are operated by guys down in the basement watching you on a screen. They're, they're not like, oh, she's walking downstage now, so pull that, no. <laughs> you have to be out of the way of the machinery. <laughs> and sometimes in a big cumbersome costume that you don't see very well out of or you know wearing a teapot but but I I um I loved being in those shows it was a very different experience for me but part of the reason I loved it was because so many families would come to see them bringing their children and I when I was doing Beauty and the Beast, you know, Belle had this big golden dress, right? And everybody that, I, that knew me, when they would bring their daughters to see that show, what they wanted to see was that dress. So I would meet them at the stage door and bring in the wardrobe department would have it all set out so that I could take, they, could, they would go backstage, they would get to meet some of the actors and they would see Belle's dress and it meant, it, it meant so much to them. And I thought these kids are being impacted by theater and it's something that you don't get on TV and you don't get in the movie theater. You, it's only live theater. That, that's a special effect of the beast twirling around and turning into the prince was magic, was real Disney magic. And only on stage would that work. So I thought it made me proud to be part of shows like that that would um, inspire a love of theater in, in children. But for me, being in a smaller, more actor-driven show 
um, whether it was hugely successful or not, was much more satisfying. <laughs> you know. So, another show which you originated the role in off Broadway was Violet. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You were working with Susan Shulman as the director who you'd already worked with, I think. So yes, on the on the Merrily We Roll Along at the York. Yes. So do you have favorite directors to work with? Oh, wow. They're all so different, you know. I've worked with uh, Susan a couple of times. I worked with uh, Chris Ashley a couple of times. Um, one of the things I respect the most about Susan is her amazing dramaturgical skills. She's, as we developed Violet from Eugene O'Neill, and then we did it at Lincoln Center, and then eventually at Playwrights, her impact on how the book changed and, you know, was really a lot. And I, I thought she was so smart um, that way. And she had a lot of impact on the final version of the revival of Merrily that we did too. Um, and, and both George Firth and Steve Sondheim loved working with her. There are, I've loved working with Bart Scher. He's very, he's so much fun and extremely creative. I don't know, I don't, I don't have favorite directors. I, like I say, like there are always great things about everybody and you always learn. I always learn a lot. Yeah. So what was the show Violet like during its original run? It was so beautiful. Lauren Ward, I mean, just a wonderful cast. You probably know because you've been looking at it and maybe listening to it. Um, and that was in the old Playwrights Horizons before they redid it. And that's where we also did Floyd in the same space. And it's just, it was a, I mean, the new one is fine, but there, it was the, it was wonderful, in fact, beautiful. And there are, you know, multiple spaces, but this was kind of old fashioned, funky. And uh, it just felt, I love the old buildings and the old theaters because you, you have a sense of everything that's gone before somehow. And all of the other actors that have worked there and uh, the other stories that have been told there. So I, I loved doing it in that space. But also it was just, um, Kathleen Marshall worked incredibly well with Susan and together they staged the show. I mean, they will both say that, that they, they staged it together. And it was so inventive. And um, I mean, we, with very little furniture, just like a few chairs, we, we made a bus, you know, and um, it was, it was great. Michael Rafter music directing. It was, uh, a, a, it's a beautiful, powerful story and an unusual story. Yeah. And I like telling stories like that, that make people look at themselves differently. So I want to ask you about actually both Violet and Floyd Collins, which we were talking about. Were those sort of somewhat collaborative as well? Because they were still in their early stages. They, of course, and they always are. It's, it's, it's inevitable, no matter who plays a role the very first time or when. They, it's, it's, I mean, I mean, how a line lands is never, or usually, I shouldn't say never, but usually not the way the writer hears it in their head. And so when somebody first reads the words and sings the words, it might not, sometimes it's better than you thought. And sometimes it's not quite what you thought it was gonna mean. Or So things change as 
you begin working on it. And that's going to vary depending on who's playing the role. So it's not an intentional where you're going like, hmm, I'm going to get them to change this and make it. You don't do that. It's just you bring everything you've got to rehearsal. You bring your whole self and all of your skills, and then you do your best and, and um, be open to suggestions and, and watch it change. So I wanted to ask you, being an accomplished actress, but also an accomplished writer, do you find that you sometimes sort of have a sense of the writer when you're in rehearsal? Like, oh, well, I certainly did. When I wrote a piece called The Road to Wear that I did at um, the Weston Playhouse in Vermont and also at Jiva Theater in Rochester. And that one, because I carried so much of it and it was based in, you know, a story based in my own life. Absolutely. And you think, wow, is it me or is it the material? You don't know. You know it's hard. It's hard to, to do that. And I'm not sure that I would do that again, because it, it's really hard. I mean, there are people that that's what they do, like stand-up comics. They they write the material and then they are the material and they think, oh, that, that's a dud, I won't say that again. But I don't know that I can be really that split in my mind to separate out um, whether it's the material or me. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, although I also want to know about shows where you're not actually the writer. Do you still sort of have a sense of what the writing is like? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, I co-wrote a show for a little theater up here in Vermont, where I am right now, at the, the Community Arts Center, that was based on a man, a real person named Charles Henry, who was a scenic artist in the 1800s and oh. traveled all around painting old backdrops, you know, the painted backdrops and old fashioned shows with his family doing vaudeville shows while he painted these things. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I, that's a show. I've got, to, I've got to figure out how to write that. So I brought along a couple of friends of mine, collaborators of mine, and we wrote this piece for this theater group to do. And that was interesting because it was also a, a crazy kind of um, hybrid between an actual vaudeville show and a story about these people's lives so that it was kind of both things at once. So I would say it was pretty successful, but there were times when I would think, oh boy, I wish I could rework that. <laughs> you know, I wish we could rewrite this sequence in here, but there wasn't time because it was community theater and people rehearse for two or three hours, once or twice a week and over a period of months. And it's just not conducive to doing that kind of work. Yeah. So, um, but they were great and the show turned out really well and everybody loved it. So, but I've, I would love another shot at it, yeah. <laughs> so you were mentioning that you also worked with Susan Shulman at the York on Merrily We Roll Along. Yeah. So when you were doing that, I was curious, were Sondheim, was Sondheim involved in it at all and George Firth? Very much so with her, particularly. I was in a, a little, there was a clump of us. Jim Hindman, me, Danny Burstein. We did all the transitions. And we moved a lot of potted 
palms around, you know, we'd, and then would be in the scene. So we were not the main characters. So we were not involved with Stephen and with George. But he, they were very much involved with Susan and in the editing and reshaping and, and with the actors who played the main characters here. So each time I think that Merrily We Roll Along gets a production somewhere, it's sort of a different take on it. So <laughs> yes. what was it, what was it in your, in the production that you did? Well, the casting was, they, they went, I mean, I truly, my perspective on it is from the perspective of the person doing the transitions and moving plot, plants around and playing uh, the mother of somebody in one sequence and the, you know, somebody of the, I didn't have, I didn't have a real cohesive track, as you'd say, in it. So, but they, the casting was, I mean, Malcolm Getz was maybe 40. I, I don't really know. Adam Heller, I, I, they kind of went for a mid age range for the main characters. So they weren't young, but they weren't old, you know. They were, they, but they were able to easily embody a more youthful version of themselves and to try to, and I think that was really successful. They were great. It, it, the, I was moved every night by, by them. They were so good. So one of the next shows you did was back to starring on Broadway, which was the Cape Man. So oh, yeah, <laughs> I forgot about Cape Man. <laughs> I'm sure that everyone would want to know what it was like to work with Paul Simon, who wrote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was a short period of time when he was actually directing it. It was, there were, uh, that show was, was um, burdened with a lot of troubles. It had, uh, it was big and unwieldy. Paul had never written a Broadway show and made it clear actually in a famous interview in Vogue magazine maybe where he said he didn't really like, there hadn't really been anything good on Broadway in, in like 20 years or something. And oh. <laughs> you know, like, oops. Um, so I, he didn't really have an appreciation for the process. Yeah. Why you needed to preview, he, he, you know. But he learned, he learned. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, what was most fascinating about having, now again, I was one of the mothers of the boys that were killed by the Cape Man. So I was not in a lot of it, I was in my own, sections of it. So I watched a lot and, but in the rehearsal process, in the rehearsal room, there was a five piece band. That's because it was Paul Simon and because he's spent his life in a recording studio or on the road with a band. And for him to actually know if something sounds the way he wants it to sound or to envision, he needs to hear it and he it needs to sound how he thinks it is. And he writes on guitar. So it's not having a rehearsal pianist is not gonna work for him. So that was just amazing to have these incredible guitar players and bass and a sound system. And, you know, it was beautiful. That was so beautiful to hear the music that way every day. Mm -hmm. so, so his focus on how 
things, whether things were working or not, had to do with the sound, the mix of things, how the song was coming across. It, it wasn't so much about the overarching um, drama of the piece and whether yeah. certain things worked or not, or, you know. Mark Morris was the original director who is a modern dance guy, right? And he, he was magnificent. I loved working with him and he did just exquisite stage pictures. And, but it was very long and kind of mystical. And when we first started doing previews, I guess the producers got scared and they realized it was over three hours, I think. So then they brought in Jerry Zachs and Joey McNeely is his choreographer, and they cut a lot out of it. And um, what we wound up with was uh, uh, okay, but it wasn't well received and it didn't run. And you could see, you could kind of see all that happening. But the, but the stuff that was, uh, Bob Crowley designed it and it was just gorgeous. It was so beautiful and magical, but unfortunately, a lot of the magical kind of desert fantasy stuff got, got cut out of it. But um, anyway, it was a wonderful, crazy experience. And I really liked doing it. <laughs> I, had a, I loved working with Ednita and with uh, Mark Antony and Ruben. They were all so, so nice and just so down to earth with all of us. Yeah. So there were some protests surrounding that show. Yes. Families of the real people who got killed. So did you have to sort of deal with any of that? I didn't, but I know Mark Anthony was afraid because he was playing the killer and had um, backup. Uh, he had to have some bodyguards to protect him. There had been a couple of threats, but I don't think it was huge that, but um, I think they, because they had, they didn't, see the show they they didn't know that we weren't celebrate the show didn't celebrate the murderer it it was trying to understand him and it portrayed him going to prison and everything it didn't it didn't glorify him at all and it and it you know um if they had come to see it they would know that they that, that was not the case yeah. but they didn't have a ch it didn't you know it didn't run very long. So for almost like historical purposes, I want to ask you, no recording exists of that show. So can you talk a little bit about what it was sort of like? You know, it does exist. Oh. But it was never released. Um. And that is something that Paul Simon would have to explain as to why, but it was never, we, we recorded it. The music was uh, varied. Um, gosh, I wish I could find it. But it's very, there's a lot of salsa. It's, you know, it's Puerto Rico and it's the streets of New York with um, Latin kids. So there's a, just a, um, Oscar, Oscar Hernandez. Is that who it was? Band leader. We had a, a real Latin band leader as our conductor. It was fantastic. The, the music was just thrilling to be part of. It was so beautiful. and so rhythmic and joyful and then the ballads were beautiful and i mean they're 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 not 
one of the problems with, with the show, with making it work as a Broadway show is that they're not really theater songs. So they don't have, um, they don't take a character's journey and move it forward, which most theater songs do. And you learn, you learn about them and they change somehow in the course of the song. Not, these were not like that. They were more reflective Paul Simon songs. So, and they were beautiful. And each one was like a little movie in a way. So it was hard to make it a cohesive, a cohesive piece. Yeah. I think, so, yeah, I think it, I've always thought it would do best like out at BAM in a, as a oh, special event. That's a good idea. So yeah. you did a tour of Annie Warbucks, which was the secret. <laughs> yeah. What was it like to work with Martin Charnin? Who oh my God, what a character. He was, he was a lot of fun and um, a good director and of course and a great lyricist. And it had been developing for years that piece. So I was just one of the many actresses that played that, the role that I played. I did not play it when it came to New York. But um, I, I loved the show. I thought it was every bit as good as Annie. I thought it was really fun. And uh, it was amazing being on the road with little girls. And some of them were so precocious and cute and funny and terrific. And then some of them were you know, with their stage parents and worried about growing because they were, they didn't want to get too big because then they wouldn't be able to be in the show anymore or be a kid actor anymore. So that was fascinating and a little bit sad. Yes. I had a lot of fun on the road with that show. So how was it sort of received by the audiences across the, the audiences? It was received well. I, I don't really remember paying any attention to reviews or anything as we were on the road. Or we, we were busy, we rehearsed all the time because they were making changes, you know, so we, we'd get to a new place, we'd go to the theater, we'd go into rehearsal, this would change, this song would be cut, that would, then we'd do the week and then we'd get back on the road. So, um, but there are a lot of wonderful people in it. It was fun, it was very entertaining and, and funny. So you you also toured as Fräulein Schneider in Cabaret. So that's, is touring something that you like doing in general? That's you. You have named the two things that I have done. <laughs> and so I don't have a vast uh, experience in that. I've I enjoyed both of those, and I you know they weren't for a long period of time. None of them were very long. They were maybe three months was one, maybe two or three months was another. So it was fine. It was, and we went to decent cities and we were all put up in nice places. So there was nothing to, I was lucky. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that at this point in my life, whether I would want to do it. Um, I think it's hard, especially if you have a established home and animals and, you know, That'd be hard. So next you did the show Ring of Fire, which was a Johnny Cash jukebox musical. Yes, yes, yes. So did you work with anyone from his estate or from his family? Because No, um, I think 
Richard Maltby did, John, Johnny Cash's son, was around a little bit, but not involved. They would kind of drop in. And I think he came to the opening in New York and I think Roseanne maybe was there, but I didn't meet her. I didn't see her, so. No, it was, um, you know, it was an unusual show in that Johnny Cash wrote some songs, but most of his hit songs were written by other writers. Yeah. So it, it was a little different in that, you know, it, it not like, um, I, I don't know, I can't even think of anything right now, but they were trying to, again, trying to make a story out of these songs that he, that he had recorded over the many years. And there wasn't anybody that was Johnny in the show. Yeah. There were like four men, three men and three women, I guess, or four men and four women. And, um, and they were, we were all sort of like, the women were all sort of June and he was, the men were all sort of Johnny at, at different phases in their life. And you know. uh, when we did it in Buffalo, New York at the Arena Theater, Arena Stage in Buffalo, was intimate, three-quarter thrust. That show played so well in there and the audiences just went nuts for it and we sold out the run and it was a ball. And then Jerry Schoenfeld flew down, flew to Buffalo from New York to see it. And he had an empty theater and Richard uh, Maltby said, well, you gotta come see this. And so he saw it and he said, sure, I'll put it in the vault and the Barrymore. Well, it didn't work in the Barrymore Theater. It wasn't the right space. It was too, it's too formal. It's a beautiful theater, but too formal, too much of a proscenium house. And there was something of the kind of the engaging energy about that show was lost in there. Yeah. So it, it was not the right space for it. So that so, was too bad. <laughs> so so what was it like to work with Richard Maltby Jr. who directed? He is, I think he is the nicest man in the world. He is so kind and funny and smart. And um, I'd worked with him a couple of times on workshops of other things he was working on and um, readings and he directed um, Hang On to the Good Times. And um, he, uh, but I think it was an, an, an impo a possible impossible. He had done Ain't Misbehavin, and I think he thought that he was going to be able to do the same kind of thing with Ring of Fire. But it, it just didn't ever really quite come together in the right way in that theater. Um, but, but I have nothing but respect for Richard. So when the when you first started doing that show i'm curious did you already know most of the songs that were in it did you well, know i heard them maybe but i'd never performed them or you know or certainly not in the way that we were doing them in the show so they were all taken apart and put back together and arranged differently and you know so you did we were talking about you did mary poppins on broadway as the bird woman so yes. You were talking again about how it's mostly machinery. So how much can you sort of act in a show that's like that? Well, it, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of focus and it takes 
paying a lot of attention during a tech rehearsal to exactly when that thing is going to move so that you know you're going to be in front of it and exactly where like there were there were all these animated birds that flew all around the St. St. Paul's Cathedral and that was all behind me I couldn't see any of that so oh. I, I kind of had to know where they were going to be if I wanted to use the birds in you know visually for me to kind of oh they're flying over there now so um it's it just takes paying attention to a lot of details and knowing exactly what's happening when. <laughs> I had it easy because I didn't wasn't in that much of the show. The Bird Woman is a very specific character and, and story, kind of almost in her own little story. But um, but Mary had to fly, and she. There were a couple of times where the when they were still in in previews anyway, where they didn't the machinery wasn't working right and she was picked up and bumped into the proscenium and they couldn't get it to because like I said the guys that are running that are under the stage yeah buttons looking at a monitor then they couldn't see her if the camera is not on then they couldn't see her. It, it was scary there were things that were really scary. In, in that show and the chimney sweeps had a really hard time it was so dark the lighting was so dark they could barely see where they were dancing and so i know that that was hard for a lot of people but the only thing that was scary for me was the steps moving downstage as i walked downstage and if i didn't know if i didn't have enough of a lead on it and wasn't going at the right pace then i could get nipped at my heels and oh <laughs> by the stairs but that was beautiful I loved singing that song and, and doing that show did did any accidents ever happen to you or to anyone else in the cast in Mary Poppins yeah yeah um and uh, I think there were some problems and it's I'm trying to remember this in Jolly Holiday some of the dancing statues, there were things moving back and forth. And I think that there, there were things that the dancers had to time with. And I, I know there were a couple of injuries, yes. Yeah. So I want to ask you, do you notice any difference between the way that a show is put on now versus the way when you started with like the original hair and? Well, hair, oh yeah. Well, hair again was with mics with cords. And so they were, there were, there were mics, nobody had a body mic or anything. And there were no cordless mics yet. So there were mic stands all along the edge of the stage going back into the wings. And you would sometimes sing at a mic off stage, but you would grab your mic and make your entrance, right? And then sometimes you would toss your mic to somebody else. So, and a lot of it then was based on, well, if this mic is here, then you've got to be there and careful if this cord gets twisted around that, then it's going to wrap around their ankle. And so you can, so a lot of things were, um, you know, staged because of the technical limitations or not necessarily limitations, but technical requirements of the, the sound. Um, um, but otherwise, you know, I think sound is probably, and lighting, 
lights, you know, they used to have to climb up and change things visually, physically. Now everything is all computerized and everything is already in there. And they just press a button and things shift around and you get another color. They don't, they didn't used to have that. Yeah. So most shows that you've been in, you've stayed with until the end, but Mary Poppins, you did leave somewhat early. So when did you when do you decide that it's time to leave a show? Um, with Mary Poppins, I had, how long had I done? I had done that a year and a half. And right near the end of my contract, I'm trying to remember if I renewed my contract or not. I think I had maybe just renewed for another six months or something. And then I was asked to do a reading of Memphis. So I did that during while I was doing Mary Poppins and I thought, oh, this show is going to be something. This is really fun part for me and this show is going to be something. So um, I just paid attention to that and, and thought, I wonder what's going to happen, because I knew they were going to do it in La Jolla and then they were going to do it in Seattle and then it was supposed to come to New York. So when the offer came to do it, I my agent approached the producers and said, will you give Cass a leave of absence to go into Memphis, you know, and they did. Yeah. And so I, um, but then it went really well. And then we went on to Seattle and then, it, and then we had the booking to come into New York. So I just decided to not go back. Yeah. So, and I never, I, I never regretted that because Memphis was so much fun. And I stayed with that for a year and a half. And I did not close that show though. Nancy Opal uh, replaced me when I left. Oh. And uh, also I didn't close Beauty and the Beast. I did that show twice, 10 years apart, the same oh. role <laughs> for nine months, twice. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? A lot of people have been in and out of that show. A lot of women in my role, so. Um, so when you are replacing in a show, as you did with Beauty and the Beast, mm -hmm. I believe, how much direction do you usually get and how much do you sort of have to do? That is a great question. Um, you don't usually work with the director, you work with the stage manager and you don't because of union rules, this is again, Broadway, you don't get to use the props and you don't get to use the set pieces. Oh unless they are structural and they're on the stage all the time. So I, you know, you're, you got two weeks and you're, you have music rehearsals and then you're told that you're gonna be over here and you're gonna be over there and you're gonna, you know, and you don't even have your cost. It's, it's very hard. And you try, you, your job is to do what someone else evolved. So you have to figure out why they moved there and why this goes this way and why your arm has to come up this way because it's not coming out of you. It's, you're trying to, because you can't, sometimes you can do your own thing, but you all, you have to also know when it's, when another actor is depending on what you're doing so that they can do what they do next. So, um, but once that first uh, week maybe of performances is over, then it, it calms down and I had a great time. I loved doing that show. So next, I do want to ask you about Memphis, which you were telling me how you got involved in that. Yeah. So what was it like to be able to work with? It was a great cast. It was a great cast. Um, 
Uh, well, it was uh, fun. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what am I going to say? I loved working. I had a especially wonderful time working with James Iglehart. Oh yeah. And um, Derek Baskin, who was then in you know the Temptations musical, and um, and Jay, Jay Bernard James Iglehart. became my my character was. Did you see the show? Do you know the show? No, I didn't get to see it. Okay, it's a long ten years ago. My character was a real racist. Oh, and throughout the course of the show, she kind of saw the light. So, I had a big gospel song in the second act, and James Iglehart, Derek Baskin, and Jay Bernard Galloway backed me up. And that is some of the most fun I've ever had on stage. Is, is doing that song with those three guys. Just, and, and we kind of invented it together, how we would do it, what the staging would be like, what the choreography kind of might be. And um, Julio, uh, um, who did the choreography, worked with us that way too. He would say, well, what do you want? Oh, how do you want to do? And then he would help us put it together and refine it and make it look like it was staged by somebody. <laughs> but we just laughed and it was just so joyful. That was really, really fun. Chad was great in his role and Montego was wonderful. And it was really fun being a part of something like that. That's a whole different kind of energy that, um, that certainly that is unusual on Broadway. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun giving an, the audiences were so responsive to that show. They just loved it. And we had repeaters that would come back and get the cheap tickets in the very front row that would come back again and again and again we be, would get to actually know them and that that was really fun too I'd never experienced that before but it was um it was very joyful I guess it's the, the biggest word that comes to mind the most so you were saying that you did this show for a year and a half so when you're doing a show for that long how do you avoid sort of getting sick of it, sick of doing it? Well, each show is a, has a life of its own. Each performance has a life of its own. And you, um, when you're standing backstage waiting to go on, um, you can kind of hear the audience and you think, how are they gonna, what are they gonna be like? You can feel the audience's energy. And then you list, I anyway, stand backstage sometimes much more than I need to before my entrance and listen to how the audience is responding to things. Yeah. And you, you hear them not laughing at something that usually gets a laugh and they, okay, so I know what I have to do in this scene or being very responsive. Then you think, all right, they could continue that way or maybe they'll be deadly quiet when I got there. Better be ready for both. You know, so you kind of make a game plan yeah. Every night it's a little bit different and you have to kind of take the temperature of the audience. They're, they're, the audience is a character in the play, is a scene partner actually in the play always. So how they respond and whether you feel that they're with you or not dictates how it's going to go. So if you, if you stay with that and don't go on automatic pilot, it, it doesn't get um, old. No. So Memphis was not a jukebox musical, but it was written in the style of a specific time. And then 
the Johnny Cash show that you did was a jukebox musical. So what's your opinion on one versus the other? Do you? Oh, um, I mean, okay. I think um, the four, what was the Four Seasons musical called? Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys. I think that is the benchmark of, of jukebox musicals. I thought that was just brilliantly done. Yeah the book to the the way it was staged and it was it felt it didn't feel like a jukebox musical it, and sometimes they did the songs presentationally as if they were in a concert and sometimes they managed to weave them into the scenes so that it was part of the action I thought it was just so creative and, and joyful wonderful I, I loved that show but for the most part for me I prefer uh, uh, songs that are written for the show that come out of the scenes and that pertain to the characters. Yeah. It's more satisfying to do, at least for me. And um, I, so that, that's my humble opinion. <laughs> so your last Broadway show to date has been The Bridges of Madison County. So yeah. how did you get involved with that show at first? I think I was doing Memphis at the time and Jason, uh, or, or no, who, who was it that, I don't know, they reached out to my agent and asked if I would like to do a, a reading of it. It was a, a week-long workshop. And I said, sure, why not, you know? And knowing, having seen the movie and thinking, mm, <laughs> I wasn't so sure. And I did read the book way back when it came out. I wasn't so sure that I would love it, but I thought, Kelly O'Hara is going to be in it, Jason Robert Brown, Marsha Norman's written the book, Bart Scher's directing it. How bad can it be? It's going to be really interesting and fun. So sure. Well, as we worked on it and as the music appeared and I just fell madly in love with it. It was one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard in my life. And we all were swept up in it, in the the lushness of the score and the romantic quality of it and um, just how many kind of human emotions it touched on. And so I, I just fell in love with it. And I thought by the time I left after that week, I thought, oh gosh, I hope they asked me to do this again. I wasn't sure, you know, and they did. So I was involved in the subsequent week long workshops of it and saw it change tremendously um yeah. yeah and the casting change and they would try things out you know I think Steve Pasquale did two of those and then he is the one that they wind up wound up casting he was magnificent and but it, that was really interesting um to see that and it became very clear to me that they were actually like auditioning people that way by working with them for a week in the room and seeing how how they fit the material and if it was if they fit their vision of it yeah so i wanted to ask you what were some of the ways that the show changed between the workshops and then what was eventually on stage oh gosh well it was longer my character changed a lot um she became more of the voice of the came more of the kind of conscience of the town um and um instead of just being 
for com comedic effect here and there. Mm -hmm. She became more, and she became more um, of a really ally and close friend of the, of Francesca, the main character. Because you know, originally she's just kind of like in it for a, a, some laughs, but it grew and changed, and that was really fun. Um, but the way we did it at Williamstown, the first production was at Williamstown without machinery. So the actors had to move everything, including refrigerators and you know, the, whoever was gonna be, there was a, an ensemble in that who did so much of that, it was really hard for them. But there was something so cool about it because they were the town and they would all have little um, highlighted things to do throughout the piece. But so you got a sense of the community that the story took place in. Whereas in the movie, in the book, you only really know those two characters, the main two characters. So I thought it was ingenious the way Bart and Marsha designed that um, so that you got a sense of setting and the impact of not only the community on them, but what these two lovers were doing on the community. So I wanted to ask you what it was like to work with Bart Scher, who is a great director. Yes, he's fantastic. I mean, he's everything you would think. He's original and he works, he's smart and he's also extremely detail-oriented, pays really close attention. And I just don't think he misses anything. And I felt um, very safe and grateful with him that he he had my, my back, you know. Yeah. So I, I thought he was wonderful. And there were discussions that were in quite in depth about the scenes, and you don't often get that. Really, we really treated it like a play. Yeah. A musical. That was fun. So I want to ask you about The Road to Where, which is an autobiographical play that you did. Yeah. So when did you sort of get the idea to start? A long, long, long time ago, longer than I even can remember. I started, I, I think when I was doing that revival of Merrily, I started thinking about it as like, what can I do where I can sing songs about things that are interesting to me in my life? So I made lists of stories that I had, the my stories, you know, we all have stories that we tell about ourselves. And then I thought, well, some of these, I don't want to, I can write some of these songs, but I think I need better composers to write some of these songs. So I made a list of people that I'd worked with that I loved, Stephen Schwartz, um, a, a number of uh, Randy, Randy Kortz and Mark St. Germain, uh, uh, just a number of wonderful people. And I asked them if they'd be interested, if I gave them some material that I'd written, would they like to turn it into a song? And they all said yes. And so, um, but that changed over the years. Certain songs got cut, but I, I wrote a song with Janine Tesori. Um, and, and, you know, it, it evolved and I started shaping it and it was very long and unwieldy. And, um, but it turned into about an hour and a half of me playing myself and this very, very old woman in Ireland. And then I had three musicians who, um, a piano, a bass 
guitar, they, they varied, violin, you know, they, they switched, the string players switched things up, but, and they played, um, the, the guitar player and the violinist, they played people in my, they played my mother, they played my father, they played certain other people and people in Ireland. And it was a, a story about a specific adventure in the South of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. So um, that's what I finally wound up with when I did it all these years later at Jiva and at um, Weston. But it was hard. And that was done because it was mostly me and and I don't think I got to do it enough and work on it enough to really understand, because you'd ask me about whether I can have be in two places at once, both the writer and the performer. I don't think I got enough experience doing that to really be able to have a perspective on it while I was doing it. Yeah. But I'm done with it. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> so um, I, what are some of the stories from your own life that you included in that that you um well oh boy I mean there's my father died when I was seven years old and he was very very ill it's very sad it's a very hard difficult story and um it was not a fun easy childhood for me during those times so there's that story is in there it was a very beautiful song but, um, and then I had a very close relationship with my grandmother who was Irish Catholic and um, I absolutely adored going to church with her even though I didn't know anything about it because I wasn't raised with any kind of religious education. So um, uh, there's a, was a great writer named David Bucknam and he wrote me a hymn, uh, a mass which incorporated the whole magical experience of going to church as a child, the Catholic church as a child, those kind of things. And then, but the whole thing is set in the framework of this trip I took to Ireland on a whim to find, to see if I could find traces of my grand, great-grandmother's family in Ennis. And, uh, you know, that that's the whole, the real story that is told in the course of the evening. And me being sent on this almost wild goose chase and renting a bicycle and riding 11 miles out in, in the rain out to the coast and then finding a woman who took me in a rowboat to this little island and meeting this <laughs> a very eccentric old woman. And um, it, it's really fun and evocative of what Ireland was like in 1985, I guess. That's when, when I went there so, so long ago, so different now. Anyway, that's what it is. So another recent show that you did off Broadway was "As You Like It" as at Classic Stage. Yeah, oh my god, how could I forget that? I mean, that really fun. Yeah, is Shakespeare something that you'd always studied or always liked? No, 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 no. I, I mean, I think I had done. The Scottish play um, as one of the witches when I was in my 20s at a regional theater in Tennessee, but I never had any Shakespearean education at all. So it was daunting when, when I got the offer from John Doyle to do, to do that, I thought, me? Are you sure you want me to do this? 
But uh, so it was hard. I had a hard time reading the play and understanding it. But as we all, but John is such a great teacher. Um, and we had so much fun working on it together. We all relaxed. Some of us were, were in the same boat, you know. It wasn't just me that felt that way. It was really fun. And, and he edited it down a lot. So um, yeah. the story was streamlined. And I felt great. In fact, I, as the performances went on, I thought, oh, I understand. I'm understanding more and more how this is done. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it, but there are certain approaches to the dialogue to what you have to say that's different than in a regular play. You don't have quite as much freedom in some ways, but you do emotionally. So it's really interesting. Is there another Shakespearean play that you would like to do? Oh, well, let me see. At this point, I would probably have to play like the old nurse and Romeo and Juliet and uh, but that would, I think that's a good character. And I don't think about it. I would love the challenge. I would love the challenge of doing more Shakespeare. So now I want to sort of go to the present day and ask you what kind of theater things have you been doing during this quarantine? I have been doing nothing during the quarantine. I've done uh, some interviews. I did a, I, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of Merrily We Roll Along. Oh. Eric produced something and uh, contacted those of us that had been in the revival and the original cast. And we all sang um, a song together and it was all edited together. But I haven't, I haven't done any readings. I haven't done anything. Um, I was supposed to do a new musical by Aaron's and Flaherty. Oh. Wow. At, um, and in Florida, at, in Sarasota. At, no, yeah, 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 Sarasota, at the Oslo. But then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. That never happened. And, um, you know, I was supposed to do, uh, I, I, there are things that just kind of fell away. So, and I haven't missed it. I, you know, I have had a very long career and I have done, so many wonderful things and I feel okay if I don't do any more. Not that I would say no if something really fun came up, but. So after the quarantine, do you think if you were to do something that it would be the Arns and Flaherty show or what kind of thing? I don't you... know, I mean, they may move on. They, you know, they may hire other people. I, I, I really don't know. How do you think that theater can recover or come back? Gosh, I think about this a lot. I don't know. You know, I know that um, some places are trying having a few audience members spread out and like a one or two character play. But, but for me, part of why we go to the theater is to sit in a room with lots of other people and all experience one thing. Yeah experience one story and that group of actors that night doing that thing we're all and we all become an organism like I was saying you know you stand backstage you listen you take the temperature of the audience you kind of get a sense of how you need to what you need to be like that night it's rare and and it depends on people feeling comfortable 
laughing out loud, crying, cheering, whatever they're gonna do. And if people are spread out, that's not gonna happen. Oh. Because I've been in some shows where the audience has been very, very sparse and they don't respond because they feel self-conscious. So I worry about that. Um, I don't know, I, I, I actually, I have not watched any Zoom productions either. I can't really tell you why, I just haven't. Thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor for me to be able to hear your stories. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when we are joined by a very exciting guest, Broadway's funny man, Brad Oscar. Brad Oscar made his Broadway debut in 1990 in Aspects of Love. And if you've attended Broadway since then, you've no doubt seen one of his standout performances. He was Tony nominated for his performances in The Producers and Something Rotten, and has also appeared in Jekyll and Hyde, Spamalot, The Addams Family, Nice work if you can get it, and Big Fish, and he was slated to play Frank Hillard in the upcoming Broadway show Mrs. Doubtfire. Off-Broadway, he's appeared in many editions of Forbidden Broadway and in Sweeney Todd and Broadway Bounty Hunter. He played in the out-of-town tryout of the First Wives Club and has toured with Young Frankenstein and the Phantom of the Opera. It'll be an episode not to be missed. Thanks again for tuning in.